0: The gospel is enough for life, and what I mean by that is that God has given you everything in his word. All right, so the last time I did this, I let everybody out in about 20 minutes. I'm, I'm aiming for 12 tonight, so let's see how this goes. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, everybody loves being let go just in time for a good, nice, relaxing evening. Uh, I say all that just, just to lighten the mood and just help me feel a little bit less awkward and a little bit more comfortable. Every time I do this, I do feel a little bit more comfortable standing up here in front of everybody. Uh, That being said, I don't think I will ever feel comfortable standing up here and talking to a group, even even a group that I feel so close to as this one. I really appreciate each and every one of you guys, and I'm I'm grateful to be here and to have the opportunity to speak to you. and so tonight, uh, we're going to take a look at a portion of scripture in the book of 2 Peter. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there, and I'll open it a word of prayer, um, and then we will get going and take a look at the, at the passage. So Almighty Heavenly Father, thank you for the ability to be in church tonight. I know the weather is, is discouraging, and it, it has probably caused many folks to stay at home. Father, I pray that you would be with them. I pray that they would have a good evening, that you would be with each and every one of them. I think of uh, little Teddy Goulet as, uh, as Pastor mentioned this morning. Father, I pray that you would be with their family especially. Keep your hand of protection over, over them and their family. And I pray, Father, that you would comfort them and give them peace during this, this time. Father, I pray tonight that you would speak to our hearts, open our hearts to hear what you have to say. Thank you for your word and for how It is a a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. so before we read, um, we're looking at uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 16 through to chapter 2 verse 10. But before we read, I'd like to go through a few key elements of this book so that we can orient ourselves as it stands in the narrative of Scripture. So first of all, Who wrote this letter? What are the themes, and what is its purpose? The author of 2 Peter, the book starts with Simon Peter, or in some translations, it's Simeon Peter. Simeon Peter just being the Hebrew version of Simon. It's it's simply Simon Peter, right? The The rest of the first chapter of this letter tells us that Simon Peter was a eyewitness of the transfiguration. That further confirms to us that the author of this book is none other than Simon Peter. Furthermore, in the the culture at the time, it was frowned upon to write a letter in somebody else's name. So these things tell us that this letter is a genuine letter from the apostle Simon Peter the one of whom Jesus said, you are Peter, and on you I will build my church. On this rock I will build my church. The author claims in this first chapter to have been an eyewitness of the the transfiguration. Now we know as well that the only people that witnessed that were Peter, James, and John. That further ratifies this as, as the apostle Simon Peter. Now we're going to look at the themes in this letter. And I noticed that I'm racing through my, my, my notes, as I usually do. So I'm going I'm to take a moment, and we're going we're to go a little bit slower. The themes that are present in 2 Peter. 2 Peter teaches us that God's, God in Christ transforms us and empowers us to re- live righteous lives, even in the face of opposition. He transforms us and empowers us to live righteous lives, even in the face of opposition, which as we find ourselves in today's day and age, we are facing that opposition more and more. The world flies in the face of everything that God has put in his word. Chapter one, verses two and four states that Christ's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through knowledge of him, who called us to his own glory and excellence, meaning that all, we have all we need just by knowing Jesus, just by knowing him and his word. What a poignant theme from a disciple who exemplified instability. Isn't that crazy? We get this letter from somebody who walked on water, but then took his eyes off Jesus and sank, had to be hauled out by his hand, soaking wet because he took his eyes off Jesus and he, he was unfaithful. Simon Peter, who, at, before Christ was crucified, denied Jesus three times. Simon Peter, who was fishing because he had failed. He went back to his own career, his previous career, before he became the Simon Peter that we know, the one who started the church. Peter learned about transformation firsthand from Jesus. Jesus went to Peter and said, we're still good. And this lesson, this theme of God's transformative power serves as the basis for the rest of the exhortations we find in the letter. Another theme present, and the one that we're going to focus on tonight, is that what is revealed to us in Scripture is true and sure because God is the one who gave it to us. It is not a work of man. This is a work of God. Scripture is true and sure because it is God-breathed. Finally, we get to the what is the purpose of this letter. This letter serves as Peter's final reminder to the churches so that his readers will live a life pleasing to God. But in doing so, Peter has to combat false teachers who were exerting pressure on churches to depart from the truth. So we're gonna cover the following points tonight. Number one, the gospel is reliable. Number two, where truth is, corruption lurks. And number three, the gospel is enough for life and godliness. So let's read our chapter real quick, our portion. I'm using the ESV. You probably all have different versions, but uh, this is the one I'm most comfortable with. Uh, So let me go ahead. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to you, which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many of will follow their sensuality, because, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. A warning. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes as he condemned them to extinction, making them as an example of uh, of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed, Distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as righteous, uh, that righteous man lived among the, them day after day, he was tormented. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment. Until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. All right. The gospel is reliable. The first part of 2 Peter, the part we didn't read, the intro, Peter states that Christians didn't, uh, sorry, It, it begins with his initial greeting and then. speaks of how God's grace in Christ is our source of godly living. Then we come to our section, chapter 1, verse 16. Peter states that Christians did not follow cleverly uh, cleverly devised myths. The early church would have lived surrounded by mythology. The Roman Empire is an empire steeped in mythology. They believed their emperor was the son of their god, Jupiter, who was basically just Zeus, clothed in Roman clothing, whatever. You know, you get the picture. The Romans had many gods whom they worshipped. Their society was steeped in legend and mythology, which was disguised as logic and wisdom. How many legends and mythologies do we get in the world that we live in today? It's very, very strikingly similar, isn't it? it's it's not hard to see how that creeps into the early church. Peter was an eyewitness of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Peter knew firsthand the truth that he was proclaiming. He knew what he was talking about. He knew the words that he was speaking to the churches. He knew how important the gospel is. Peter lived daily life with Jesus. He witnessed God say, saying from heaven, he witnessed God speaking from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. He says, You would do well to pay attention to the prophetic word that has been confirmed, treating it like a light shining in darkness before the dawn. The core truth to this point is that the gospel is reliable. Jesus came to to earth. God sent his only son. God walked on earth with us as a man, Jesus. He was tempted like we're tempted. He lived a life of hard work, of, of humble submission and ultimate sacrifice. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to live like one of us. He knows what you are going through as you sit here in church tonight. He knows you. He knows how many hairs you have on your head. Or if you don't have any, he knows that too, right? (laughs) Isn't it comforting to know that our God knows us that intimately? Isn't it blessing to us to know that he knows the things that we struggle with every single day? Jesus Christ, our Savior, lived among us and he died for our sins. He was raised from death because death had no hold over God. He defeated sin, death, and the grave. The gospel is reliable. Peter, as an eyewitness, is reminding the early truth that it is all true. If you know anything about legal matters. Eyewitnesses in court are valid proof of something. Peter, as an eyewitness, serves as a valid form of evidence that all he says and all he is saying is true, not to mention the fact that things, lies tend to degrade over time. So what we are hearing from Peter is the same truth that was preached then is the same truth that is being preached to us in church today the gospel is reliable no prophecy comes from the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along from by the holy spirit says verse 21 thank god that the words that we live by in this book are not the words of man they are his very own words They are his love letter to us. They can be trusted. The gospel is reliable. Secondly, where truth is, corruption lurks. We have a crafty adversary, the devil. He seeks to infiltrate and twist truth so that it looks like truth, but it is not. The Bible repeatedly warns us to be wary of false teachers. Chapter 2 and verse 1 is one of those instances. Peter says, False prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. The message we should receive loud and clear from this is watch out, be wary, be careful. Know what truth is. Know what is a lie. There is an old analogy that is often used when we talk about knowing the difference between truth and a lie, and it is that of a bank teller's training. Bank tellers are given actual real currency. They're told to sit, and they're told to study it. They sit with it day in and day out. They get to know it. They feel it. They touch it. They learn the difference between truth and fake by sitting with the genuine article. They get to the point where they can tell a fake just by looking at it, because they've spent time dealing with the genuine article. They notice the minutiae that you and I probably wouldn't spot. The small details, the tiny little things that are put there to keep something that is real from something that is fake. In the same way, you and I, as Christians, need to steep in the word. We need to be students of it. And we need to know what we believe so that when we hear false teaching, we can spot it immediately False teaching is quiet it's stealthy some of it's blatantly obvious because the ideas are really stupid but most of it is stealthy and quiet Peter says that it was that the false teaching snuck or crept into their midst If you can picture a burglar sneaking into a house, that's kind of the idea that we're dealing with here. False teaching is like that thief. It's not trying to be blatant. It's not trying to be obvious. It's trying to creep just a little difference here a little subtlety there that that is just just slightly off from what we believe but maybe we don't know enough so that maybe this is true maybe this is something we've heard maybe maybe we've heard it somewhere before maybe maybe we haven't we don't know because we need to be in our bibles if you aren't studying your, the word of god if you do not know god you can be easily led astray so how How do we spot corruption? How do we spot this this mess? Well, Colossians 3.16a says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. John 15.5 says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. To be able to spot false teaching, you need to know truth. You need to know truth. You need to be a student of it. Study God's Word. Let Him fill you. Abide in Him, and His truth will abide in you. Being a Christian is a relationship. Last time I spoke, I I talked about a relationship. If you were there, you, you probably will remember the story, but if you weren't, You can ask me about the story next time. But to have a relationship, you have to be in communication with the person you are in relationship with. You cannot have a relationship with somebody you do not talk to. You cannot have a relationship with somebody you only spend a short period of time every week with. Things become very difficult. When you're in a relationship, you need to know that it's going to take work. You are learning somebody. You are learning who they are and what they believe, what is real and what is not. So that when they do something out of character, you can call them out on it. But our God doesn't change, so we will never be able to call him out on anything, right? But we need the same premise stands we need to know Christ. By knowing Christ, you will know what truth is and what is not truth. Verse 2 says, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So people that don't, that that follow false doctrine are apt to let areas of self-control slip. They give in to sensuality. They give in to whatever feels good, because... It feels good. We like doing the easy thing, the hard thing we shy away from because it's, it's hard. Sometimes we're like lightning. We follow the path of least resistance. Whatever is quicker, whatever is easier, we want to do this, that, or the other. Sometimes as Christians, we like to cover this behavior up by using words like, God told me, or I feel it in my spirit saying we are discerning and wise, but anything apart from God's word is a lie. Peter says that we do, uh, because we do this, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Truth will be given a bad name by those who claim to follow it, but act contrarily. If you act differently to what you say you are, you are, you are a hypocrite. Furthermore, he likes to talk about, he's, he's speaking here about uh, a greed that drives a false teacher. Historically, false teachers are marked by their, their, their sexual sin, a lust for monetary gain, their greed, their dishonesty. Those things are the marks of false teachers. If, if somebody is getting money from it, they probably, like getting vast sums of money from it, they're probably a false teacher. Somebody has a penchant for certain behaviors, probably not a good teacher. Peter says that their destruction is not idle. Their downfall will come. Chapter 2, verses 4 to the first half of verse 10 talks about the downfall of these teachers, and he uses a rabbinic form of teaching that follows the pattern. If A is true, then how much more so will B also be true? He says, if Sodom and Gomorrah are ashes and extinct, what's going to happen to the ungodly? He says, if he rescued um, righteous lot, is he not also able to rescue us as well? Our God knows how to deal with false teachers, and they will get justice. The character of Satan is this. If he can find a way to slip in and infiltrate our circles, he will. He will take truth and he will twist it so it is just so slightly different that you barely notice it. The antidote to this is to know scripture, to store God's word in our hearts. We have taught that every single Sunday, Sunday by sun, Sunday. I have stored my heart, your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Where truth is, corruption lurks. And then finally I want to talk about how the gospel is enough for life and godliness. We have everything that we need to live our lives in a way that is a righteous and good life in the eyes of God, just with what we have in the Bible. The life we lived, the life we live is likened to a race by Paul. The picture is of a marathon. It's not, not, just, not just any race, but, like, the most grueling and intense race. That image, in a, if, if you are not a runner and you think of marathons, you, you get exhausted just by thinking of it. <laughs> the idea is that life is not easy. It's arduous, and it takes constant effort until we die. As someone who likes to run but also hates running... This picture is encouraging to me because when life is not going the way that I expect it to, I can smile because it's going right in the image that we are given in that that passage. When life is hard, I can be reminded that I am not alone and that Jesus has sent me a helper. The same power that conquered death and the grave lives inside you and me. The same power that spurs us on to love and good works. The spirit of the living God lives inside you and me because Jesus died for us and was raised and is seated at the right hand of God. The gospel is enough for life. And what I mean by that is that God has given you everything in his word to get you through your life, even in the world that we live in today. It's not just something that, was, that pertained to the, the Christians in the old days, back, back when, I don't know, there were horse and, horse and buggy transport and all of those things. It is valid for today where we have cell phones and cars and instant ramen for lunch and dinner, those kinds of things. Instant coffee, instant ramen, instant internet, instant knowledge, all of that stuff. The gospel still pertains to our lives. Alistair Begg often lovingly lovingly quotes that the main things of Scripture are the plain things and that the plain things are the main things. The Bible was written for blue-collar people, for white-collar people. The Bible was written for scientists and scholars. The Bible was written for teenagers and children. The Bible was written for you and for me. You have all you need in the words of scriptures to live out your life. We do not need any additional information. There is no book outside of the Bible that will tell you anything any more effectively than God's word will. All we need to do is accept that Jesus is Lord of our lives and live in relationship with him as students of his word. God can change your life if you let him. You cannot live your life unchanged once you meet the creator of heaven and earth. You cannot live your life unchanged once you meet the creator of heaven and earth any more than what you can walk away unchanged after a car wreck. Your life will change once you meet Jesus. If you really desire to meet God, to be changed by Him, you need the truth that comes from His Word. I need the truth that comes from His Word. I cannot function in my own strength. I cannot stand in front of you and talk to you in my own strength. When I was in, when I was in high school, here, we'll go, we'll go to story time for a little bit. When I was in high school, let's, let's, go, let's go back to parts of my past that I really don't look on fondly or enjoy remembering. But when I was in high school, Uh, English class was my least favorite class, partially because I I thought it was stupid. Because I speak English, why do I need to take a class that teaches me more about the words that I am speaking? Also, it had my least favorite thing to do, which was public speaking. I I didn't do well in public speaking in English. I had to talk to a class of 25 people, sort of like what we have here tonight, except a little bit bit more. I had to speak for probably three to five minutes. I could barely stand that. The point, the point I have in sharing that story is that I could not be up here if it were not for God and for his, the strength that he gives each and every one of us through his word, to know his word, and to, to be able to communicate it. All right. Paul ends chapter 2, which in a part that we didn't read, but the end of chapter 2 talks about how false teachers are waterless springs and mists driven by storms. Waterless springs promise to quench thirst but leave you thirsty. Mists that are driven by storms create confusion and then they leave. They're just gone. So you have to deal with the chaos that you have just encountered. The truth of the gospel is a wellspring of life. I'm going to read a chapter, a, a piece of scripture in the book of John. In chapter 4, verse 7 to 15. You don't have to turn there. I'll read this, this to you. And When a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into a city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is that you, how is it? That you, a Jew, ask me a drink, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw, draw water with, and the well is deep. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty I have to come here to draw water again. Jesus shared truth with that woman at the well, the truth of the gospel. The gospel is all we need for life and godliness. If you ever feel lost or confused or alone in this life, remember this, that Jesus did not leave us to fend for himself. He gave us his Holy Spirit. He has given us his word. He has given us the church. We have all that we need for life and godliness. Let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the truth that dwells in your word. Thank you that you have given it to us so that our eyes may be open to what is what is a lie and what is truth. Father, I pray that as we go into our weeks, we would not neglect you or your word. As we go into your week this week, Lord, I pray that we would we would be stewards of the lives that you've given us, that we would go into our daily lives and share the gospel to those that we come into contact with. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice that he made on the cross for us so that we might not perish, but we have everlasting life.